Our word today comes from Acts 14, verses 8 through 24. It's, on, uh, it's in, uh, underneath sermon notes. And, cha- and verse 8 starts with, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that moment, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laocian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Antilia. From Antilia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work there had now been completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. So we are making our way through, um, through the book of Acts, and as we've said uh, many times now throughout this series, uh, one of the things about the book of Acts that is helpful for us is that it, it, it gives clarity to the question, or it gives an answer to the question, why did the early church spread so quickly? Why, why did it grow so quickly, something that has caused a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, 
historians and, and sociologists and anthropologists uh, and cultural anthropologists to, to really uh, be surprised at how the, the early church just grew so fast so that it took over the empire in only uh, a few centuries. And we've been looking at the book of Acts to kind of try to understand an answer to that question. And one of the things that we have seen is that the church, the manner of the spread of the church was through evangelism. Jesus. And there was a pattern up until this chapter anyway, in Acts chapters, uh, t- uh, f- uh, really it's kind of 2 through 13, the pattern was, was that Jewish people who had converted to the Christian faith would end up in some city because they were spread out be- because of persecution, and uh, they would go to the synagogue and they would share their excitement at having found the Messiah that the Old Testament spoke about. And so Jews in these cities would hear about how the Old Testament scriptures were being fulfilled and they would come to accept Jesus as their Savior. And that was sort of the pattern uh, for how the gospel spread, at least in this first half of the book of Acts. But what we see here in chapter 14 is something quite different. Something new happens. This is Uh, the first account of the apostles sharing the good news of the gospel with an entirely what you would call pagan audience. So it's not that these people were not religious. They were religious, but they were polytheists. They were from uh, the, they were Greeks. Uh, They believed in the pantheon of Greek gods, so they were religious, but They had no previous knowledge of the Bible at all. They didn't know anything about the Old Testament. They didn't know anything about the Jews and about this coming Messiah and all that kind of stuff. They had no foundation on which the apostles could build in sharing their faith. And so the question is, how do you share your faith in that context? How do you connect uh, the gospel story with a culture that really has no knowledge of the history of God's dealings with the world, and particularly through the people of Israel. And you know, that's a good question for us to ask, because that's our setting. Um, I don't know how much contact you have with non-Christians. Probably a lot of you have a lot of contact with people who aren't believers in your workplaces, or in your schools, or on your sports teams, or in your, in your, your I don't know, your business associations, etc., like that. But what you'll discover is that we are now moving into a time in our culture where we're called post-Christian, meaning we now have generations of people who are growing up with absolutely no Bible knowledge at all, nothing. They don't know beans all. To them, Good Friday and the story of Jesus dying on the cross and seeing, you know, the bloody image of Jesus hanging on that piece of wood, it, it, they don't know what that means. They just don't. And so the question for us is, well, how on earth do you communicate this story of the gospel to people who have no prior knowledge about it at all? And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to think about today as we look at this story recorded for us in Acts chapter 14. And so I have, I do have points. They're, they have all have, they're lo- I have lousy titles for my points. So I almost don't want to share with you the titles of my points, but I will. The first point is the preparation for sharing the gospel. The preparation for sharing the gospel. So if you look at verses 8 through 10, um, you see that 
Paul and Barnabas, they've gone to this town called Lystra or Lystra, depending on how you, uh, how you pronounce it. And this town is different from where they've been before. They've been in major urban centers before. Now they find themselves in a small town. And in fact, they find themselves in kind of a hick town. <laughs> okay? This was considered uh, kind of a backwater of the Roman Empire. Very simple people there. Uh, not uh, super well-educated, not super thoughtful necessarily. They were kind of country bumpkin type peeps. That's what you would, you would probably describe them as today. And they were considered kind of uncivilized. And so they enter into this town that has this sort of characteristic and Paul sees a lame man. And, this, and, and Luke says he's lame from birth. Okay. Paul looks at him intently. Paul somehow discerns that this man wants to be healed, has some sort of faith to be healed. I'll admit, I'm not exactly sure what that means. But the point is, is that he looks at him, he sees this in him, and then he says to him, you, stand up. The guy stands up and he walks. Now, why does Luke tell us about that miracle? There's a lot of miracles that are recorded, or not recorded, sorry, that happened in the missionary work of the apostles, and not all of them are recorded. Why does Luke record this one for us? Well, hopefully, for at least some of us anyway, this miracle rings a bell, and I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to ask someone out there to tell me what this miracle reminds them of. Was, did this happen previously, maybe, somewhere? That's my hint. Come on, Grace Kids director. In the Gospels, yes. Jesus uh, heals the lame man, yes, but that's not the story we're talking about. Don't feel bad. Like, look, good, good. But that's not the one. Yeah, go ahead, John. Baby, you got it. Give that man a... Scooby snack. Um, in Acts chapter 3, the exact same miracle happens. Peter performs this miracle. Now, why does Luke connect this miracle of Paul with the miracle that Peter uh, uh, performed? Simply for this reason. He's trying to show that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, whether uh, whether educated or uneducated, all people have the same basic needs and the gospel of Jesus Christ meets the basic needs of all people, no matter their history. Now, I really want to spend like 20 minutes applying this to your circumstances, but that's not actually the main point. So we've got to move on to the main point. But you can think to yourself about, hmm, that's an interesting implication because there are people in my life who sometimes I think, well, you know, does the gospel really apply to them? Is it, would it be interesting to them? They're a different kind of person. Luke's recording this, go- this, this miracle to demonstrate that the gospel is for everyone. But more importantly, it's an example of how the word, that is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, was very often accompanied by deeds. By deeds, by doing good works, by caring for, for not just the sort of spiritual needs that all people have, but actual physical needs, actual material needs that people have. And the point is this. If you want to gain a hearing, 
with your non-Christian friends and you want to be able to say to them something about how wonderful Jesus is, you have got to show them that you care about them. That they are not just a project to get them to sort of Uh, intellectually assent to the concept that Jesus Christ is the God who came into human flesh to live the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and if you put your trust in him, you will go to heaven when you die too. But rather, what 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 you care about is them as a human being, as a person. Whether they accept your your gospel presentation or not, you care about them because they're made in the image of God, because they matter. You know, I mean, this isn't rocket science. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this, right? You, you, you know that when you know that another person cares about you, like really cares about you, no matter what they want to talk to you about, you're more open to hearing them. You're more opening, open to listening to them. Because that's how we are. Now, that's not to say that you don't have to say anything and that you can just let your deeds do the talking for you. You know, there's a very popular saying right now, it's, it's super cool, you know, preach the, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. Any of you guys ever heard that before? Yeah? It's, it's, it's a cool saying, it's terrible theology. First of all, Francis of Assisi, it's attributed to him, he never said that, nor would he ever say that. The guy, he was the guy who said, I preach the gospel to the birds. So, come on. Anyway, that's besides the point. The point is this. If, you, if a, a man loves a woman, and all he ever does is kind things for her, and never says to her, I love you, they will come see me for marriage counseling. Because it's not good enough. Deeds don't communicate entirely the, 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 the fullness of the, the love and the commitment. You need the words. People need to hear the words. And the same is true with the gospel. We need to communicate the gospel with words. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do here. Now, that leads us to point number two. How do you do that? And this is the posture, okay? The posture of evangelism, I guess we're going to call it. So Paul, Barnabas, they come, they do this crazy miracle, the guy stands up, and the people freak out. They are losing their minds. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw that Paul had done what they had done, they shouted in the Lysonian, I can't say it either, John, language, the gods have come down to us in human form. They, in their own dialect, are freaking out at the thought that the gods have actually visited them. Now, it's interesting that it talks about their dialect because it means that Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand it, so they're, they're all jabbering to one another and Paul and Barnabas are looking around and going, what's going on here? And then they start to figure it out because they see the priest from the temple come out with a bull. Ah, I wonder what that means. And a bunch of reeds and they, they go, oh no, they're going to sacrifice to us. So now not only are the people freaking out, but Paul and Barnabas are freaking out. And in verse 15, it says this, friends, so Paul and Barnabas, they rush into the crowd and they say, friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news. There. Stop right there. We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news. Right there, you have this perfect expression of the posture 
that Christians need to take when they are sharing the gospel in their context today. Because what they show is this beautiful marriage between humility and confidence. Humility and confidence. They say, look, we're just humans like you. We're not special. We're not unique. We're not different. But we have good news. We have a better story for you than the one you currently know right now. Now, in today's culture, you can't do that. In today's culture, to be humble means to be uncertain, specifically about your beliefs. You can't be confident about your beliefs because that would be arrogance. How dare you tell me that you know the truth? That's sort of our cultural uh, posture. You can't do that. Um, but the gospel, the gospel makes you humble the way humility is meant to work on us. Because a Christian is a person who says, look, my salvation, my relationship with Jesus Christ is fully and completely a result of God's grace. The reason I know Jesus and Bob doesn't, or Sally doesn't, or my sister, brother, parent, child, neighbor, coworker, sports teammate, whatever, doesn't. The reason I know and they don't is entirely by grace. It has nothing to do with my knowledge. It has nothing to do with my, uh, my wisdom. It has nothing to do with my morality. It has only entirely everything to do with God's kindness and grace. And so all human beings are, we're all, as my dad likes to say, we're all fallen and failing. And so when you realize that, when that sinks into your heart, it makes you empathetic, it makes you compassionate, and it makes you patient with people. I was talking with Jessica this morning. She was telling me about uh, this thing that a bunch of ladies went to last night about mentorship and how to mentor, how do women mentor one another. And she was saying how her group that she drove with, they were talking about on the way home, trying to figure out how to apply this and what, how, do, how do we start this? How do we do this? And one of the things they, they brought up was a brilliant and a very important thing. And that is, even in the mentoring relationship where you are the mentor and the other person is the mentee, and I've been in a number of these kinds of relationships on both sides of the, the relationship, and when you're the mentor, what you think you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be the person who helps the other person all the time, right? Like, I give you wisdom, I give you advice, I sit here and I pontificate from my mountaintop, and then you go and do. You feel this responsibility to, to impart something to the other, but what they, were, what they were realizing was, was that even in the mentoring relationship, as the mentor, you need to demonstrate openness and vulnerability and honesty about your own struggles, about your own weaknesses, about your own failings, about the stuff that is messed up in your life, because what you are is a co-journeyer with that other person. And that's exactly right. When it's all of grace, any advance that you have made in the gospel, any advance that you have made in your life, any steps towards being more like Jesus that you have accomplished is by grace. Ultimately, it wasn't you. You partnered with the work of the Holy Spirit, but you are not the one who accomplished this in your life. Humility. We are just humans like you. C.S. Lewis always said, you know, a Christian is just a beggar like everybody else who wants to tell people where they found their bread. That's it. 
We know where bread is. That's all. That doesn't mean, the humility, of course, doesn't mean that you don't share the truth, however. Peter, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they were not afraid to speak truth. So the posture is one of humility and confidence, and the approach is two-pronged. So we're on point three, the approach, sub-point one, because it's two-pronged, is, and I didn't have a name for it. Oh, well. Notice that what they say, on the surface, anyway, at least at first blush, sounds incredibly harsh. Notice what they say. We are bringing you good news, this is verse 15 again, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Your beliefs are worthless. Now, does that not sound like religious colonialism to you? Maybe it doesn't sound so bad to you, but let me put a face on it. Can you imagine yourself speaking to an indigenous person who shares with you their beliefs in the great spirit, their beliefs in, uh, in their traditional religious practices, and you actually saying, well, they're, you know, that's kind of worthless. Does that not make you cringe? Just the thought of actually, it makes me cringe, you know? Uh, but it's very helpful for, for us to think carefully about what Paul is actually doing. What does he mean by worthless? Why does he use this word worthless? When he does that, he's, he's talking about their idolatry. He's talking about their idols, about those things that they worship, those things that they find their value in, those things that they say uh, uh, are most important to them. And he's saying those things that you are putting your trust in, they are ultimately empty. They are ultimately deceptive. They are ultimately ineffectual. Yes, he's saying they don't exist because there's only one God. He says that later, right? He says the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, of course. But his main, prom- his main point is this. All these gods that other people are believing in and trusting in, they promise a fulfillment, but they don't ultimately deliver. They ultimately leave you empty. In fact, they enslave you with fear. Notice that this group of people, let me explain this to you, this group of people, they try to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Now, there's a little bit of background that if you know it, it helps you understand why they're doing that. Ovid, who is a Roman writer, he tells a story of how centuries before, Zeus and Hermes came down to this area, okay, where Lystra is is found. They came down to this area and they went to a thousand different homes, all dressed up in, in, in disguises, went to a thousand different homes asking for lodging. And everybody turned them away, except this one poor old man who had almost nothing. And he accepted them. And so after they did this, they went back to Mount Olympus or wherever they're from, and they they actually blessed this poor old man tremendously and he was given riches and all this kind of stuff and everybody else had their properties leveled. And so now, these people think that Hermes and Zeus are back. 
And they're like, we don't want that to happen again. And so they go, quick, we got to sacrifice to these, to these guys in order to appease the gods, you see. And that was the state of religion in that day. Religion was, look, they believed in all kinds of gods. And if you had a business and you wanted your business to flourish, you had to sacrifice to the gods of business. If you, had ch- if you, had, uh, if you were married and you wanted children, you would sacrifice to the gods of uh, fertility. And it went on and on and on and on and on. People constantly sacrificing to these gods. Got to appease the gods because otherwise they're going to bring the smack down on us. And so they always lived in tremendous fear, you see. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, you've been ruled by fear, the fear of these idols that you are worshiping. And today, maybe people say, well, that just plain, that sounds plain weird. I mean, we don't have idols. People aren't walking around afraid. But wait a minute. Think about this, okay? Just, an idol does not have to be a thing, an entity. It can be an idea. An idol can be an ideology, An idol can be a desire that you have deeply held in your heart that you really, really, really want satisfied. Let me give you a very simple example. The cell phone, okay? If you have grown up in the cell phone age, okay, so I'm I'm not a, a cell phone age person, so I don't understand this from a personal intuitive perspective, but I see it in people my kids age for example so when you're if you're like 25 down to 15 you really don't remember an age without cell phones and more and more uh scholars and cultural critics and psychologists etc are talking about just how dangerous cell phone usage has become to the point where it is virtually addictive to people who have been raised on it. And the reason is, is because of the, the, the various applications, they all have these notifications, right? So you get, a, you get a ding for a Snapchat, you get a ding for an Instagram update, you get a ding for a like on your post, you get a ding from Facebook. I know nobody under 30 uses Facebook anymore, apparently, but that's the one I know. And you get these notifications, and every time you get that notification, you get a little endorphin rush, you get a, I don't know if it's dopamine or whatever, but one of these chemicals goes poof. And it is as addictive as heroin. And if you wonder, oh, come on, it can't be that bad, you try taking a teenager's phone away for disciplinary purposes. It's not a good thing. I have a friend who is a professor at McMaster University, and he's talking about how what they're trying to do is they're trying to have students not take their phones in for exams. And kids are having radical separation anxiety. To the point where what they've tried to do now is they put these boxes on the desks and these boxes have timed locks on them and you put the phone in the box and you lock it during your exam and you can't have access to it because the thought of not having it physically present actually creates anxiety. Now why? What's that all about? You're ruled by fear. The fear of missing out. The fear of disappointing the person who texted you and you didn't text them back, you ghosted them or whatever that's called. The fear of not getting as many likes on your post as you, as you wanted and so you're waiting for the likes and then every time you get one, you get this, in, this endorphin rush. And, and you may say, I'm making much, much, much too much out of this and that's what every young person does to me all the time. You're always making much, much, much too much out of this. 
But it's a symptom, in fact, of a much bigger issue. When we put our trust in something, anything outside of God, it will master us. It will rule us. Some of you may know who Chris Everett is. She was a a very successful tennis player during the time of Martina Navratilova and these these kinds of, of tennis players. And when she retired from tennis, she had an existential crisis. And this is what she said. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. And so all of you people who are going, yeah, those cell phones, what about you? Your work. What if I bombed at work? Your family. What if my kids don't make of themselves what I ever expected? Your spouse. What if they don't make me feel as important as I need to feel? Why am I belaboring this? This is why. You talk to a non-Christian and they say, well, why do I need Jesus? You can't say to them, well, because you're breaking the Ten Commandments. You know, you spend too much money on yourself, you cheat, you lie, you're having sex outside of marriage, these kinds of things. They will look at you like you're a pumpkin. Because they'll say to themselves and they'll say to you, well, I'm not really that bad. And besides these rules you have, especially the sex one, these are things that we have to decide for ourselves. Nobody can decide that for us. This is, this is the world we live in today. A world where people decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. But if you say to them, look, Bob Dylan was right. You gotta serve somebody. If you say to them, look, we all have to live for something and whatever we live for it will master us. And the things that so often we are living for they, they rule us by fear. They just might listen. Because you're putting a finger on something that's wrong that they, that they can resonate with, you see? That's what, that's what Paul did here. Now, he gets cut off in his speech, obviously, but he, he would have gone on to say, because he does in other places, he goes on to say, look, Jesus is the better God. Everybody's got to serve something. And if everything you serve is going to rule you by fear, what makes Jesus better is is that he will not rule you by fear. Because God knows who you are as you are now. God loves you as you are now. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to sacrifice anything. You don't have to perform in any way. You don't have to make yourself worthwhile in any way in order to please him. He is already pleased with you because his son Jesus fulfilled all his obligations on your behalf so that you just go to God as your heavenly father and you entrust yourself to him and you never, ever, ever have to prove yourself to anyone. Ever! Do you not know how incredibly freeing that is? I've had glimpses of this in my life. I wish I could have this like 24-7 because I tell you, there's no feeling like really believing deep down in your soul you do not have to prove yourself to anyone. 
You don't have to prove yourself to your spouse. You don't have to prove yourself to your kids, to your boss, to your employees, to your friends, to your neighbors. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone. You just live in this incredible freedom that comes from knowing that you are a child of God, loved beyond your wildest dreams. That's the gospel. And if you fail him, here's the wonderful thing about him. If you fail him, and you will, because you failed everything else. You failed your boss. You failed your friends. You failed your spouse. You failed your kids. You're going to fail him too. But the thing is, is that he forgives you. He knows you're going to do it, and he forgives you. Now, people may not believe that, but it gives them food for thought. It makes them ask, what what makes me tick? Why am I so anxious? Why do I get angry? Why am I living so hard for happiness and I'm still not happy? So that's the first prong. The second prong is, you show how gracious God is and you appeal to their instincts. Paul does this in verse 17. He says, he has shown kindness By giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Now, Paul goes all the way back to the beginning. He starts with creation, uh, this God who has made absolutely everything, including us. And he says, this God, he cares for you. This is what's unique about him. He didn't just wind you up and let you go. He cares deeply about you. He feeds you. He makes sure that rain falls on you. And this is something he gives to Christians and non-Christians, believers and not. This is his grace to all of us as human beings. And then he gives you joy. He gives you these incredible moments of joy. I know the news is full of bad, 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 bad news. Because that's what sells. But there's an awful lot of good news in the world too. I know there was this viral video about this poor little boy who was being bullied because of his size. You guys all know what I'm talking about. Well, not all of you, but a bunch of you know what I'm talking about. And it was heart-wrenching. You see this boy crying in his car and he's saying to his mom, I just want to die and you just like want to go out and beat up every bully you've ever met. And I just saw on the news this morning uh, in Australia, his favorite football team uh, invited him to a game and they had him come out and he's holding hands with this rugby player or whatever and they're walking out in Australia and he's got this big grin on his face. It's such a wonderful good news story. There's so many of those stories out there too. They fill our hearts with joy. I was driving home on Wednesday night on Highway 5 in the evening towards, I was heading west towards the sunset and the sun was setting and I don't know if you remember it, but it was just a spectacular, breathtaking sunset. Purple, pink, red, the sky was just lit up with all this stuff. And I thought to myself, Why is that? Now, I know there's a scientific reason. All you science nerds, take the fun out of life. (laughs) Put the science away for a second and just think to yourself, God didn't have to make it that way. He just gave, gave us these incredibly beautiful things. The changing of the leaves in fall always blows my mind. Why can't it just get cold and they all fall off? I suppose it could, but no, God says I'm gonna turn them red and yellow and beautiful colors and you go to the Dundas Peak and you look out overwards and it just it just blows your mind why just for the beauty of it all just for the joy that it gives us and it's for everybody 
And that appeals to our instincts because this is what happens, you see. We want to be thankful. We want to have gratitude. Philosophers through, throughout the ages have been baffled by the question, where on earth does this need to show gratitude come from in human beings? Where does that impulse, that instinct come from? It doesn't look like it has any connection to our so-called evolutionary development. And who do you say thank you to? Do you just say thank you to the universe? Well, thanks, universe, for that sunset. Yeah, I suppose you can, but it leaves you ultimately dissatisfied. But if you can share with people, well, you know, there's actually someone to be thankful to. There's actually someone to show gratitude to. This God who created all this and put all this beauty and majesty in this world so that you could, could relish in it, you can thank him. Now, notice, Paul is teaching all these biblical truths without mentioning the Bible. See, we think gospel evangelism is a presentation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to some degree it is, but for many of us, if we could just start by expressing the truth about God in our contexts, non-awkwardly, that would be a huge start. When I was in seminary, I taught at a school, my wife and I both taught at a school where the athletic director uh, would have to go to meetings with all the other athletic directors in the region to talk about sports and the season and stuff like that. And it was his just natural way of talking when they were talking about scheduling with all these non-Christian athletic directors. He would say, you know, well, if God sends rain, then we'll do this. And if God sends sunshine, then we're sure to do that. And it just rolled off his tongue and it was completely natural for him. He was just speaking a biblical truth in his context. Last point, quickly. I'm just going to call it lifestyle witness. This is the downer, (laughs) in a sense. So I should keep it short, right? We don't want a downer for too long. Verse 19, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Listen to this. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Quote, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. I don't know what to make of Peter, Paul getting stoned and getting up. I want to make lots of jokes about it, like, ooh, he gets up, and how, how on earth did that happen? And what did he look like? Was he black and blue? Was his head like a pumpkin? I, I don't know. But somehow he survived a horrible beating. And he goes back into town. And then he makes this trip with Barnabas back through the places that they had planted churches to what? Encourage the disciples. And how does he encourage them? How do they encourage them? He tells them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I've been thinking about this. You know, ultimately what Paul was telling this, this, this pagan crowd is, is that real joy is not found in idols. Real joy is found in depending on on the real God for everything. The problem is, we don't tend to depend on the real God for everything without trials. 
Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, I've led a charmed life and I've really learned to depend on God through it? Have you ever heard that? No. It's always through the hardship. Hardship drives us to dependence, to humility, and in those places we experience the profound love and presence of God. There is no avoiding it, friends. And Paul is, de, is, is, is encouraging these disciples. He's saying, you must suffer. And in a sense, what he's saying is, is that suffering well is a form of evangelism. You know, philosophers say that our culture today is the absolute worst culture in the history of civilization in preparing people to suffer. The Hindu culture and the Hindu story, the Buddhist culture and the Buddhist story, Islam, Judaism, traditional uh, First Nations cultures, they have all taught people to suffer because they tell stories of the meaning of life. And so suffering becomes part of the meaning of life. And so they make sense of suffering in a way and, and, and talk about how suffering achieves your, your fu and fulfilling the meaning of life. Do you understand? But here we are in a secular culture that today tells us the story is this, self-fulfillment, personal happiness and personal freedom. Well, if that's the story, if that's the meaning of life, suffering can't be part of the story. It's an interruption to the story, you see? And that's why people in our culture today, we cannot suffer well. We collapse under suffering. We, we don't just say why. Saying why is absolutely fine. We say why and then we become bitter and we become angry, and we become cynical, and sometimes we go crazy, and we collapse under the weight of our suffering. But you see, a Christian says, look, God hates suffering. He didn't create a world where suffering was going to happen. We did that, but our God knows suffering too because he came down in the person of Jesus Christ and he suffered alongside us and he suffered for us so that when we do suffer and we will suffer, we can know that he is making us more like him. The one in whom our absolute dependence finds complete and joyful fulfillment. You see how it all fits together? It's an amazing story. I have no conclusion. So let's pray. Father, what a story. What a challenge. Uh, we don't want to suffer, Father. We don't. But if, if we must, may our suffering be an example to the people around us. May it raise questions in their minds. How do you do it? How do you carry on? How do you still have joy in the middle of all this mess? How do you get stoned? And then get up again and do it all over. Father, make us uh, winsome sharers of the gospel. If there's anybody here uh, who d doesn't believe in Jesus, may they just be open to the prospect that maybe they're like those folks in Lystra who, who are worshiping things. They didn't even know they were worshiping them, but they are things that are, are driving them to fear. They are enslaving them and capturing them. And may they just be open to the possibility that, that if they give themselves to you, which they think is a form of slavery, is actually the path to freedom. 
And make all of us who are here who do know Jesus, make us willing to just share the freedom that we've experienced in our context, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus, amen.